All right, good morning. We have uh, been preaching over the last few uh, weeks now our series on our vision and values. Uh, We've talked about uh, IBL, Institute of Biblical Leadership, uh, came in. They helped us work through uh, our vision values. Pastor Justin preached through our vision statement, uh, the different parts of that. And last week he began looking at our first value, which was holiness. And as you see on the screen, we're going to talk today about our second value that we determine uh, in our extended leadership team meeting, uh, which is integrity. So today we're going to talk about integrity and, of course, that as a value of our church. Now, maybe some of you are wondering, as a lot of people in our extended leadership team did as well, what's the difference between holiness and integrity? Aren't they pretty much the same thing? Well, I think there's a little bit, and I think we as a leadership team felt there was enough of a nuance between holiness and integrity that we wanted to uh, make integrity a value in and of itself, okay? And so there's not a huge difference, but I think holiness, of course, will produce a life of integrity, whereas you can have integrity and not be uh, holy in a sense. You can be, uh, you know, there are unbelievers who have integrity externally, um, but not necessarily holy. So holiness will produce integrity, just like holiness will produce a lot of changes in our life about speech, about our conduct, things like that. And so as we look at integrity, we're seeing that as an outworking of holiness when it comes to our character. Sol- Solomon Arabotu puts it like this. The very word integrity is derived from the Latin word integritus, which means wholeness that is integra- in, uh, integrated. Wholeness that is integrated. To integrate means to make all other parts function as one. A person of integrity is whole, that is, entirely integrated, not split or divided, but single-minded. The choices and acts of an integrated person, that is his intellect, emotion, and will, are subject to virtue. In other words, there is perfect integration between what is in his mind and what is in his words. A person of integrity is completely one within himself, and so he can act nothing but who he is within. A person, this is a a contrast, a person who lacks integrity is one who is double-minded, No one really knows who he is. He's neither black nor white, doesn't keep to his word, not trustworthy. Sometimes he's spiritual, at other times indifferent to the things of God, generous today but selfish tomorrow. In church, he's a Christian and talks like one. Outside of church, he's somebody else. When he sees a man, he pretends to be a friend and later stabs them in the back. He is one whose character changes with different situations and people. He becomes who people want him to be just to have their affirmation, approval, and acceptance. He becomes a chameleon to ensure people remain useful to him. So integrity means having a a character that is honest, that is trustworthy, that is transparent. It means we're the same person no matter who we're with. We're not one person with these group of people, a different person with these other groups of people, or a different person entirely when we're by ourselves. We're one person. We're acting in integrity and transparency. C.S. Lewis said that integrity is doing the right thing even when no one is watching. So holiness is that overarching quality that should permeate every area of our life. Integrity specifically refers to this honesty of character, that we're transparent. And like we said, holiness will produce integrity, and that's the type of integrity we're seeking is one that's motivated by holiness. But again, as I mentioned, I think you can have integrity apart from holiness as well. As some of you may know, I I didn't have a, I didn't know my real dad growing up, and so my granddad was like my father to me, and so my granddad was what I would describe as a man of integrity, although I wouldn't describe him as a godly man. Not that he, I do believe he was a believer, but he wasn't pursuing holiness, but he was a man of integrity. He was honest, he was trustworthy, dependable, And one of the ways that my granddad sought to instill this value of integrity in my life was through our favorite pastime, golf. We would play golf together, and golf is a great teaching lesson about integrity. You have to have integrity to play golf, truthfully. Uh, And that's because golf is the only sport where you call a penalty upon yourself. There's no referees out there. You're calling penalties if the ball moves. You have to call it out on yourself if you have integrity. And so my granddad instilled this idea of integrity through golf and through the model of his integrity. And I remember 
an occasion in my life where this was really put to the test. Uh, it was state tournament my senior year. Uh, I had, uh, we had, our golf team was in state tournament just for Christian schools, and we were playing at my favorite course. So my expectations were through the roof. I'm going to go out here. I'm going to shoot a low round. I'm going to hopefully win state medalists. Our team's going to win state. And so I started off kind of slow, didn't have the best opening six holes, but was hoping to turn around and get to the seventh hole, which was a par three, and I hit a great tee shot about 20 feet from the hole, and now it, here it is. I'm putting for birdie, hopefully going to turn my round around. And as I get up to the green and I get ready to putt the ball, I put my putter down, and ever so slightly I see the ball move. I just nudged it just very, very slightly. In fact, all the other people play with me, nobody noticed that. I backed up, I said, did you guys see that? No one saw it. At that point, I could have just moved forward. It didn't really make uh, my ball any closer to the hole. It was still, uh, you know, would still be a birdie putt. And so these thoughts go through my head. But at that moment, I remember my granddad. And I think it was there that day, in fact. And I remember the integrity that he instilled in me. And so I had to acknowledge in that moment that I had made the ball move. And so now a 20-foot birdie putt to turn things around now turns into a 20-foot putt to save par, which is a big difference. And so I remember at that moment, my granddad, and again, this value of integrity that he had modeled and that he had taught me through the game of golf. And so while in that moment, I may have kept things quiet, I may have just said, oh, it's not a big deal. It didn't improve my lie. Maybe I make the birdie putt. Maybe I don't. I would have saved at least a shot in that moment. Had I not been instilled that idea of integrity, I would have lost my integrity over a simple shot in golf. And so Again, my granddad shows, I think, that integrity is something you can have apart from godliness. However, as we think about this value in our church setting, we know that holiness has to be the motivating factor for our integrity. It's not enough to simply be a person of integrity if it's not motivated by our pursuit of holiness and through the power of the Spirit at work in us. And so let me show you this morning, this is the statement that our Extended leadership, came up, extended leadership team came up with about integrity, and it says this, we value integrity, therefore we strive to honor God in our character in all areas of our lives by exhibiting honesty, trustworthiness, and discipline while walking in accountability to God and one another. And then you see a few references that we've uh, put together that instill this idea of integrity. And so as I prepared to preach through this value, I looked at these uh, references. Psalm 7, I think, is a psalm of David and talks about his integrity and him clinging to the Lord. would have been a great passage to look at. 2 Corinthians 5, 9, probably one of Pastor Justin's favorite, uh, is that whether we're at home or away, we make it our aim to please him. And if you've had a lot of interaction with Pastor Justin, you know that he'll say of that verse that we want to please God more than we want to breathe, right? So that would have been a great passage to look at as well. But as I thought about the direction we might go instead, I thought maybe we could look to a narrative example of someone who uh, exhibited this idea of integrity. And so my be- mind began to think, what, what is a great example in Scripture of someone who had integrity? And so your mind ultimately first goes to the Lord Jesus as he's the ultimate example of any kind of character quality, positive character quality. And certainly we could have found an example in the life of Christ where he had integrity. I thought about men like Daniel, who maintained his integrity even in spite of the culture around him, that Babylonian culture. Thought about Job, who after suffering tremendous loss, his wife even tells him, why are you still holding on to your integrity? Curse God and die. And yet Job clinged to his integrity. And that, those would have been great examples to look to. But I settled on another example that we're going to look at this morning, and that is of the life of Joseph. Joseph exhibits tremendous integrity through the circumstances of his life. And so, if you want to turn this morning to Genesis chapter 37, we're going to walk through a few chapters of Scripture together. We're not going to read all these passages, but I want to highlight, as we walk through this example, I want to highlight a few passages. So we'll start in Genesis 37. And I don't want to limit our time together to just looking at Joseph's life. Here's a life of integrity, now go and do it. I want to look as well at a negative example of integrity in this passage. But I want to bring it home and point us ultimately to the gospel, which is the true source of a life of integrity. And so 
Before we dive into these examples this morning, let's pray and ask the Lord to bless our time together. God, we thank you for your word. We thank you for the example that we're going to see of Joseph and the negative examples you give us as well. But God, it's my prayer that today we would not look simply to this, these chapters of Scripture as just a moralistic message of do better, of be a man of integrity or woman of integrity, but God, that we would truly see the beauty of the gospel as we look here. That we would see the source of integrity that seeks to honor you, and that's through the gospel of Jesus. So God, bless our time together. Give us wisdom and insight and give us the power that is not in and of ourselves to live this life out, but only comes through your spirit. And we'll give you all the praise in Christ's name. Amen. So we're going to begin by looking at a few examples of integrity. And first of all, we're going to see what I call the good, the good example of integrity, Joseph. We find Joseph here, come on the scene in Genesis chapter 37. And if you look at verse 2, we see uh, this reference to him. It says, there are, these are the generations of Jacob. Joseph, being 17 years old, was pasturing the flock with his brothers. He was a boy with the sons of Bilhah and Zilpah, his father's wives. And Joseph brought a bad report to them of them to their father. Now Israel loved Joseph more than any other of his sons because he was the son of his old age. And he made him a robe of many colors. But when his brothers saw that their father loved him more than all his brothers, they hated him and could not speak peacefully to him. So Joseph enters the scene here. He's 17 years old, uh, an age that not necessarily always marked with integrity, right? We know how teenagers can be. This is not to bash. We've all been through the teenage stage. But we find Joseph in this age of 17, and we see him here on the scene bringing a bad report uh, to his father about his brothers. This probably demonstrates a level of integrity right here because his father Jacob is at least trusting him enough to give an accurate report about his brothers. Okay, And he's honest in his reporting, even though it's negative. And so we see in this verse as well, this causes conflict between him and his brothers. His brothers hated him, not just because he's given a bad report, but because he's beloved by his father. Uh, his father makes no bones about it. He loves him more than the others. And so there's animosity that we see here between Joseph and his brothers. They hate him. They're jealous of him. Skip down to verse 12. We see another scene here. Uh, and just prior to this, what we see is Joseph has a series of dreams. And these dreams basically reveal to his brothers and to his parents that one day they're going to bow down to him. This is the interpretation of the dreams. And so you imagine this just intensifies the animosity between his brothers and him, that they're going to bow down to him one day. And so this hatred is stirred even more. And then we come to this scene in verse 12. It says, Now his brothers went to pasture their father's flock near Shechem. And Israel, this is Jacob, said to Joseph, Are not your brothers pasturing the flock at Shechem? Come, I will send you to them. And he said to him, Here I am. So he said to him, Go now, see if it is well with your brothers and with the flock, and bring me word. So he sent him from the valley of Hebron and came to Shechem. And a man found him wandering in the fields, and the man asked him, What are you seeking? I'm seeking my brothers, he said. Tell me, please, where they are pasturing the flock. And the man said, They have gone away, for I heard them say, Let us go to Dothan. So Joseph went after his brothers and found them at Dothan. We're going to stop there in this passage for now. So we see here again Joseph's integrity that his father sends him on this mission, that his father can trust him to go find his brothers and report to them. And at first glance, this may not seem like a huge task, but Shechem from where they were living was about a 50 mile journey. And they didn't have cars back in the day. They couldn't drive 50 miles and be there. He, this would have taken several days of a journey. So here this 17 year old is being asked to go on a multi-day journey to find his brothers and then bring back word to his father. So we see integrity in him and that he's entrusted to this task that he seeks to go out, but we see it further because when he gets to Shechem, his brothers aren't there. They've moved on to Dothan, which is another distance away. And so instead of saying, well, I did what my dad asked. I came to Shechem. Brothers aren't here. Just going to go back and tell my dad, sorry, they, they weren't there. We see Joseph going the extra mile. He, he wants to give a report to his father 
not just do what the bare minimum of what he's told. He goes the extra mile, literally, to Dothan to find his brothers and give a report. So we see his integrity. We see his honesty in the way that he would report. We see his trustworthiness that Jacob trusts him to do this and his discipline to take this journey and to find his brothers. So we see the next scene here in the end of uh, chapter 37 is, and we know this scene all too well, his brothers see Joseph coming from a distance and because of their hatred, they begin to plot against him. They tell each other, let's kill this guy. Let's kill this dreamer, this beloved of our father. We need to get him out of the picture. He's nothing but a, a sore uh, spot in our lives. And so they plot to kill him, but we see Reuben here, the oldest, say, no, let's not kill him. Let's throw him in a pit. And so they do just that. Here comes Joseph. They take off his, off his robe and they throw him in this pit and plot what to do. Well, then next we see the brothers decide as they see a band of Ishmaelites on their way to Egypt. Why would it be of our advantage to kill him? Let's sell him. Let's make a profit off this. And so the brothers determine we're going to sell Joseph and we're going to profit it. And then what we see at the end of chapter 37, they take his robe of many colors, they put uh, animal blood on it, and they bring it back, and they deceive their father into thinking that he's been killed by wild animals, much to Jacob's, uh, he's, he's broken up about his son, this beloved son being killed. And so we see his brothers, the animosity they have, they sell him into Egypt. And then we pick up in the story in chapter 39. You can skip over chapter 38 for now. We will come back to it, though, but chapter 39, we see Joseph going to Egypt. And again, we see, even in spite of the circumstances, his integrity shine in this moment. Look at verses 2 of Genesis 39. The Lord was with Joseph, and he became a successful man. And he was in the house of his Egyptian master. His master saw that the Lord was with him, and that the Lord caused all that he did to succeed in his hand. So Joseph found favor in his sight and attended him, and he made him overseer of his house and put him in charge of all that he had. From the, time that, uh, from the time that he made him overseer in his house and over all that he had, the Lord blessed the Egyptian's house for Joseph's sake. The blessing of the Lord was on all that he had in house and field, so he left all that he had in Joseph's charge. And because of him, he had no concern about anything but the food he ate. So, Again, we see this young 17-year-old man. He's now in a position of slavery, and yet the Lord's working in all the circumstances, and I think through his integrity, he rises to prominence in Potiphar's house. He's put in charge of everything. Again, this speaks to his trustworthiness, his honesty, his integrity. So we see his integrity come to the forefront again. But we know the scene changes. Look at verse 6 again, the second part. It says, Now Joseph was handsome, in form and appearance. And after a time, his master's wife cast her eyes on Joseph and said, lie with me. But he refused and said to his master's wife, behold, because of me, my master has no concern about anything in the house. And he has put everything that he has in my charge. He is not greater in this house than I am, nor has he kept back anything from me except you because you are his wife. How then can I do this great wickedness and sin against God? And as she spoke to Joseph day after day, he would not listen to her to lie beside her or to be with her. Here again, we see a highlight of Joseph's integrity. Here's a circumstance where he's being tempted to commit immorality with Potiphar's wife, but he resists the temptation. And as it ends there, day after day, this is a constant temptation and day after day, Joseph's integrity says, no, I'm not going to do what you're asking me to do. And there's a couple reasons that he does this. One, he doesn't want to uh, lose that integrity in his master's eyes. His master has given him this, him this position. And because of his integrity, he doesn't want to betray his master. But deeper than this is what we see him say to Potiphar, how, or to Potiphar's wife. How then can I do this great wickedness? Not in sin against Potiphar, although that would have been a sin against him, but sin against God. Ultimately, Joseph's integrity is maintained because he doesn't want to sin against God. He knows that, and I imagine the temptation of Potiphar's wife. This will be our little secret. Potiphar never has to know, right? We can see the scene, and we can see the, 
probably the wheel spinning in Joseph's mind. Yeah, he, he would never find out. But Joseph knows that even if Potiphar never found out, God knows and God sees. And so Joseph maintains his integrity and resists the temptation. But one day we know that he's in this circumstance and Potiphar's wife grabs him. And instead of just resisting, now we see Joseph running away from the situation. Joseph here embodies what would later be written in the New Testament by the Apostle Paul in 1 Corinthians 6, 18, where he says, flee from sexual immorality. Here we see Joseph embodying this idea. He doesn't stay around, he runs, he flees. Right? It doesn't say in 1 Corinthians to not, uh, it doesn't just say, or it tells us, not, don't play around with it, don't entertain sexual immorality, don't flirt with it, don't see how close you can get to it without being overtaken by you, but flee, flee sexual immorality. And so, We know in the culture that we live in today, especially as men, this is probably the number one tool that would bring down our integrity, right? How many people have we seen in a position of prominence be brought down because of sexual sin? And so we see, even in spite of this, Joseph maintains his integrity. And we would do well to look to the example of Joseph and to heed the words of the Apostle Paul and to flee from sexual immorality. If we're going to be people of integrity That's what we should do. But we see in this passage, Joseph's integrity isn't rewarded. He doesn't pass the test and then somehow the truth is told and now he's exalted to a position of prominence. No, instead, he's punished. Potiphar's wife lies and says that he tried to take her by force. And so Potiphar is enraged and throws him into prison. Right At this point, if I'm Joseph and if you were, as well, we would be tempted to say, man, what has integrity got me? Time and time again, I've held to my integrity and I'm thrown into a pit. I'm sold in slavery. I start to rise in position and have success. And then I hold my integrity again. And every time I have integrity, I'm punished. This would be a great reason for Joseph to say, forget it, right? It's not done me anything. I'm going to lie, cheat, and steal my way out of here. But instead, even in this state of prison, we again see Joseph's integrity and we again see that God is with him and that Joseph's trust is in the Lord so look at verse 39 verses 21 to 23 says the Lord was with Joseph and showed him steadfast love and gave him favor in the sight of the keeper of the prison and the keeper of the prison put Joseph in charge of all the prisoners who were in the prison whatever was done there he was the one who did it the keeper of the prison paid no attention to anything that was in Joseph's charge because the Lord was with him. And whatever he did, the Lord made it succeed. So here again, even in this position of being in prison, Joseph is successful. God grants him success. And I think this is, again, due to his integrity, that even as a prisoner, he's entrusted with the work of the prison. He's entrusted with everything. The prison guard doesn't have to worry about anything because he knows Joseph's got this. Again, it shows his honesty, his trustworthiness, and his discipline. In chapter 40, we see Joseph uh, interpret the dreams of Pharaoh's baker and cupbearer. And just to summarize the story, they have these dreams. And the interpretation that God gives to Joseph is that the baker is going to be killed uh, in a certain number of days and the cupbearer is going to be restored to his position. And so Joseph tells the cupbearer, when you're restored, remember me, tell Pharaoh about me so I can be taken out of this situation. But We know the story And he's forgotten for two whole years. And so chapter 41 picks up and two years later, two years of him being in prison still have passed. And now Pharaoh has a series of dreams and no one is found who can interpret these dreams. There's seven uh, skinny cows that eat seven fat cows. There's seven healthy ears of grain that eat seven or seven uh, not well weak uh, ears of grain that eat these healthy ears of grain. And so Pharaoh can't make sense of this. He looks all over the land. No one can be found that can interpret his dream. And suddenly the cupbearer remembers this man in prison who interpreted his dream. And so he tells Pharaoh, there's this guy, there's this Hebrew that told me my dreams. We should get him out and see if he can interpret your dream. And sure enough, they pull uh, Joseph out. And Joseph accurately interprets his dream that these seven cows and seven ears of grain are seven years that are going to be prosperous followed by seven years of famine, okay? 
And so he not only gives Pharaoh the interpretation of the dream, he goes a step further and he tells him, he gives him advice. This is how you should handle the situation. Again, this speaks to the wisdom that God had given uh, Joseph as well as his integrity. And so verse uh, 33 to 36 of chapter 41, we see this advice from Joseph. Now, therefore, let Pharaoh select a discerning and wise man and set him over the land of Egypt. Let Pharaoh proceed to appoint overseers over the land and take one fifth of the produce of the land of Egypt during the seven plentiful years and let them gather all the food of these good years that are coming and store up grain under the authority of Pharaoh for food in the cities and let them keep it. That food shall be a reserve for the land against the seven years of famine that are to occur in the land of Egypt so that the land may not perish through the famine. So here, here's his advice. Appoint people, wise people, that can oversee this task of storing up food during these seven prosperous years so that when the seven years of famine come, we've got plenty of food for everyone. Okay? But here's what we see in the next verse, in the next verses. Uh, because of his integrity, because of God's working through this situation, Pharaoh does just what he said. He appoints a wise man, and he says this, This proposal pleased Pharaoh and all his servants. And Pharaoh said to his servants, Can we find a man like this in whom is the Spirit of God? Then Pharaoh said to Joseph, Since God has shown you all this, there is none so discerning and wise as you are. You shall be over my house, and all my people shall order themselves as you command. Only as regards the throne will I be greater than you. And Pharaoh said to Joseph, See, I have set over you all the land of Egypt. Then Pharaoh took his signet ring from his hand and put it on Joseph's hand and clothed him in garments of fine linen and put a gold chain about his neck. And he made him ride in his second chariot. And they called out before him, Bow the knee. Thus he set him over all the land of Egypt. Moreover, Pharaoh said to Joseph, I am Pharaoh, and without your consent, no one shall lift up hand or foot in all the land of Egypt. So here we see this historic rise of Joseph to a place of power and prestige and prosperity, right? And so the lesson of the story is hold to your integrity and eventually God will bless you, right? Sadly, that's how many times this story is taught. Just be, just have integrity. You might go through opposition, but God will one day give you power or prestige or, or, or any kind of provisions that you want in life. That's not the story that we see here in Scripture because if that were the case, this is where the story would end, right? The story would end with, now Joseph reigned over Egypt, his brothers, because they were scoundrels, they didn't know about the famine, and so they died, and then God worked through Joseph's life, right? That would be how the story went if it was all about, if this was the payoff that we were leading to, that his integrity led to this. This is not just a fable, one of Aesop's fables, where we tell a story that's made up, and here's the moral of the story, now go and do it. That's not what we see here in Scripture. The story doesn't end here. Okay, this is not the big payoff for Joseph. And so I want to get to that in a minute, but before we do, I want to take a step back and I want to look at a bad example. And so I encourage you, flip back a couple pages to chapter 37. We're not going to walk through it to the extent that we have, but I want to highlight a couple things that we've purposefully overlooked as we consider, secondly, the bad example. Joseph is a good example of integrity, but throughout this passage, we can't neglect that there's a bad example set before us as well, and that is one of Joseph's brothers, Judah. Okay? I didn't mention this specifically, but when we look at Genesis 37, verses 26 to 27, the brother that actually comes up with the idea to sell Joseph into slavery is Judah. Okay? He's the one that specifically is mentioned as the one that says, hey, let's sell our brother and profit. And so right here we see a lack of integrity on Judah's part, right? He's probably the leading voice as well when they get back to Jacob and show him the cloak that's covered in blood. He's kind of the, the main lead of all that's going on here, okay, to deceive his father. So we see his lack of uh, integrity, his lack of trustworthiness, of honesty, okay? Um, even as we go back to the beginning of Genesis 37 where we saw uh, Joseph giving a bad report. He's one of the brothers that is given a bad report of, so he's not trustworthy in any way. Further, if you look at chapter 38, we're not going to read all this, but it's amazing as we look at chapters 37 to 50, Joseph seems to be the main player at hand, 
And then we come to chapter 38, and it seems completely out of whack. Why is this account of Judah thrown in here? Isn't this about Joseph? Why do we skip over Joseph's life for chapter 38? Well, 38 shows us the further lack of integrity from Judah. Judah, uh, really, this, uh, the events of chapter 38 are probably taking place as Joseph's in Egypt. So they're running simultaneously. And so while Joseph's in Egypt, he's holding his in- integrity. He's rising in success because God is with him. All the while, the events of chapter 38 in Judah's life are happening. First of all, he marries a Canaanite woman. And we know in previously in, uh, when Abraham was looking for a child for his son Isaac, he told his servant, don't take a, a woman from the Canaanites, go to my people to find a woman. So he, he, he kind of disobeys this idea of trying to marry uh, not outside of these chosen people of God. And so he marries a Canaanite woman to start. Then if you read further, what you see is he has three children, and the first two are so wicked that God puts them to death. The first one marries, he gives uh, this first son into marriage to a woman named Tamar, and He's wicked, God kills him, and in that day and age, if a brother died, the next oldest brother would then basically take his brother's spot and produce offspring for that brother. And so the second son is given to Tamar, but he disobeys, he's wicked as well, and God puts him to death as well. And now Judah's left with one son who's younger, he's not old enough to be married, and so he pledges to Tamar, go back to your father's house, be a widow, and when the time comes, I'll take my youngest son and I'll give him to you so that you can have offspring. But Really, as we see in the story, he has no intention of ever fulfilling this because he's afraid that God's going to kill this son as well. This son's going to be wicked as well. So we see his dishonesty and his deception even here in pledging this younger son. A few years pass. Nothing's changed. Tamar's in uh, with her father and Judah's wife eventually dies. And so Judah heads to a town. Tamar gets word that he's going to this town and she takes off her widow's clothing And instead, she dresses like a prostitute and basically seduces Judah in order to produce offspring. And so Judah is uh, led into this immorality with Tamar. Time passes again. Three months later come, and here now his daughter-in-law Tamar's pregnant, and he's outraged, right? She's supposed to be waiting for his youngest son, even though he has no intention of ever fulfilling the pledge. And so he's outraged. He says, we're going to put her to death. But as she comes out, she demonstrates uh, through the pledge that he gave her. He gave her a signet, gave her a staff, uh, gave her a cord that were his, not knowing that it was her. She reveals that he's the one that committed the immorality with her. And so Joseph, or Judah here confesses that she's more righteous than him. So throughout this chronicle, without getting in depth in chapter 38, we see Judah's lack of integrity. Here's a man who was the lead instigator in selling his brother into slavery and keeping it a secret from his father, deceiving him into thinking that Joseph's dead. Here we see the lack of discipline in his life when it comes to his uh, moral integrity or lack thereof, we should say. And so we see this Judah painted in contrast to Joseph. Time and time again, Joseph's maintaining his integrity And Judah is not. Judah is anything but a man of integrity. Now it's interesting, and if really if the lesson, if the message ended here, this would be the message, right? It'd be a very moralistic message. Be like Joseph, don't be like Judah, right? All right, let's pray and go home. That's how we would end if the only focus was a moralistic message. But the story doesn't end here either, okay? We see Joseph in Scripture is one of only three men who's, who no sin is mentioned in his life. The other two are Jesus, who we know was sinless, and Daniel. And although there's no sin recorded in Daniel or Joseph's life, we know they were sinners, that they needed a Savior. But when we see the standard even set by Joseph, a sinful man, we realize that it's a standard none of us can live up to. The truth is, all of us find ourselves, when it comes to our integrity, Somewhere between Joseph and Judah, right? We're somewhere probably in those margins. We're probably not as bad, we think, as Judah. But honestly, we're probably closer to Judah than we are to Joseph, if we're honest. And so what is the hope for us? Is it just a moralistic, pick yourself up, dust yourself off, have integrity, now go and do it? I don't think that's what we see here in this story. Again, because if that were the case, chapter 41 would be the end of the story. 
But we see, in light of this good example of Joseph and a bad example of Judah, the last thing I want to focus on this morning. And it points us to the gospel. And it points us to Jesus. And this is what we see in chapter 42. In chapter 42, Joseph's in this place of prominence. He's storing up all the, uh, he, he's storing up the, the crops to prepare for the famine. The famine comes just like God had predicted. And in chapter 42, we see Joseph's brothers who have not been on the scene since the mention of Judah in chapter 38. Now they're right back here. They're coming to Egypt. They're hungry. The famine has set in. They've not prepared for it. And here they come face to face with Joseph. And the account tells us that Joseph recognizes them. It's been 20 years to this point. The last time Joseph saw his brothers, they were plotting to kill him and then selling him into slavery. And so you can imagine, this is not a happy reunion for Joseph. As he sees these men, he thought he'd never see again. Fortunately, they don't recognize him. It's been 20 years. He was 17. Now he's around 37. A lot changes in that time frame. He's probably embraced Egyptian culture, so who knows what he looks like. And so he recognizes them, but they don't recognize him. And at this point, it's not a foregone conclusion that Joseph's ever going to tell them who he is. He doesn't know what these men might do. They might find out, oh boy, Joseph's still alive. We need to kill him. We can't let it get back to dad or we're going to be in big trouble. So there's not, it's not a foregone conclusion he's ever going to tell these men who he is. But Joseph sets forth a series of tests. He sets forth a few tests to see if his brothers are the same scoundrels they were 20 years ago when they sold him into slavery. And so he puts these tests up to them, and the first test really has to do with the noticeable lack of who has come. The ten brothers came, but one of them's missing. It's his brother Benjamin. And Joseph probably thinks, boy, when they got rid of me, it's likely that dad's love and favor went to Benjamin, my younger brother, who was the son of the same mother, Rachel, who was dad's favorite wife, right? You see the dysfunction in this family. And so in Joseph's mind, he's probably thinking, well, boy, when I was out of the way and they didn't have me to hate, it's very likely they turned their hatred and their jealousy toward Benjamin because Jacob naturally is going to love Benjamin more than them. And so he's probably wondering, where's Benjamin? Has he, have they killed him too? Did they sell him into slavery? What has happened? And so he puts out a test. As they tell him who they are, he says, well, you've got to go get this brother and bring him back to me before I give you any kind of food. And so he tests him. Is one of them going to stand up and volunteer? Yeah, I'll go back and get Benjamin. Three days pass. He puts him in custody for these three days, and then he gives him another alternative. Well, one of you can stay, and the rest of you go and bring Benjamin back, and then you know things will be fine. Well, nobody volunteers to stay, and so he grabs Simeon and binds them before their eyes. So it's amazing here in Genesis 42, 21 to 24, we see really an emotional scene. I want you to look at these verses. Genesis 42, 21 to 24. They don't realize, again, who Joseph is. They don't know that Joseph speaks their language. He's using an interpreter to talk with them. And so they're talking to one another, not knowing that he understands what they say. And here's what we see. They said to one another, In truth, we are guilty concerning our brother and that we saw the distress of his soul when he begged us and we did not listen That is why this distress has come upon us. And Reuben answered, Did I not tell you not to sin against the boy? But you did not listen. So now there comes a reckoning for his blood. They did not know that Joseph understood them, for there was an interpreter between them. Then he turned away from them and wept. So we see the emotions as Joseph's reliving this event 20 years ago. And when this event happened in Scripture, it doesn't tell us that Joseph's pleading with them. Don't do this, guys. But here we see the angst that they felt. He was pleading with us and we still did this sin against him. We still sold him into slavery. And so Joseph reliving those events, we see the trauma, we see the weeping that takes place. And so he takes some time away, comes back. He takes Simeon, he binds Simeon. He says, unless you come back with this other brother, you're never going to see Simeon again, right? You're never going to see my face again. And so here's another test. Are they going to care enough to come back for Simeon? Are they going to produce this brother? Have they earned their father's trust enough to be able to take Benjamin back to Egypt? And so he lays these tests out and some time passes in the end of chapter 42. And then here in chapter 43, 
after they've eaten all the food they have, they're hungry again. And it's time to return to Egypt or they're going to die. And so here we see them telling their father, hey, we've got to go back to Egypt. Or actually, Jacob's the one, go back to Egypt, get us some food. Dad, we told you, if we don't take Benjamin with us, he's never going to let us back. In fact, there was another test that uh, Joseph put. He put their money back in their sacks, right? He's testing their honesty. When they come back, are they going to prove that they were honest men, that they have integrity? Are they going to demonstrate that they're trusted by their father? So he's testing their integrity to see, are these the same guys that sold me into slavery all those years ago? And so we see this conversation at the beginning of chapter 43, but then we see in verse 8 and 9 a dramatic change. And I think this is the type of change we can only attribute to God working in someone's life. A change that points us to the gospel and the fact that the gospel changes people's lives. Look at verse 43. We've talked about the good example of Joseph, the bad example of Judah. But look at this change in the life of Judah. Genesis 43, verse 8. Judah said to Israel, his father, Send the boy with me, and we will arise and go, that we may live and not die, both we and you and also our little ones. I will be a pledge of his safety. From my hand you shall require him. If I do not bring him back to you and set him before you, then let me bear the blame forever. So here, don't, don't miss the significance of this. Here is the brother that 20 years prior is saying, let's sell our brother into slavery. Let's make a profit. Let's deceive our dad because of his love. And now the other beloved son of Jacob, Benjamin, his, his tune has changed, right? His life has changed. Now he's saying, let us go with Benjamin and I will pledge myself to bring him back to you. I will be a pledge of his safety. So we already see a, a, a slight change in Judah that he's willing to do that. We also see the fact that Jacob trusts them enough to actually do it. After pushing back initially, Jacob lets them go back to Egypt with Benjamin. And Benjamin himself, who's a grown man at this point, seems to trust them enough to go with them to Egypt. And so they head back to Egypt. They get there with Benjamin. And again, we see an emotional scene where Joseph sees his brother Benjamin, his younger brother whom he loved, hasn't seen in over 20 years, and again he weeps. We see the emotion throughout this passage. And he shares a meal with his brothers. He's still not revealed himself to him. He's still not convinced fully that these men are changed. And so he puts them again under another test. They sort of pass these first tests, and he kind of tests them again. Let's see if they really are different. In chapter 44, he puts their money back in their sacks again as he sends them back, but this time he puts a silver cup in Benjamin's bag. And then after they're a little ways off, he sends his steward to go after them and to confront them and to say, hey, you stole this cup, you stole the money back, and see what they do. Let's put them under a little bit of a test. And so, sure enough, the steward goes out, he finds them, they say, we, we, why would we steal? We brought the money back. Again, they showed their honesty before. Why would we be dishonest? And they, they probably put their foot in their mouth because they say to this steward, look, if you find the cup in any of our bags, then that person will die and the rest of us will be servants. But what happens? Sure enough, the steward finds the cup in Benjamin's bag. And here they are. Their dad's told them, I'm not letting you take Benjamin because he's going to die. And here the reality sets in that Benjamin might be killed. And so we see the emotion. They tear their clothes because of what's about to happen. And so they go back to Joseph. Joseph confronts them. And again, here's the test. Judah has already pledged that he'll be a pledge of Benjamin's safety. But when push comes to shove, is he actually going to deliver? Right? It's one thing to say something, but when your feet are held to the flames, is he going to actually follow through? And what we see is that he does. We see this amazing, dramatic display of God's changing of a person's life in Judah. So now it comes down to it. Joseph says, look, I'm not going to make you all servants, just the one that had the cup in there. And so if Judah's the same old guy he was 20 years ago, this is a great opportunity. You, you guys can go home, just leave Benjamin with me. If he's the same guy, he's thinking, boy, man, that worked out better than I thought. I didn't even have to plot to get rid of this brother. It just worked out. We'll go back home. Dad'll just have to deal with it. He's old anyway. So, you know, if he's the same old guy... This is a great opportunity to just get out of the situation. But what do we see? We see him coming to the 
forefront again and talking to Joseph. And in verse 32 to 34, this is what he says. He tells Joseph about this pledge. Your servant became a pledge of safety for the boy to my father, saying, if I do not bring him back to you, then I shall bear the blame before my father all my life. Now, therefore, please let your servant remain instead of the boy as a servant to my Lord and let the boy go back with his brothers. For how can I go back to my father if the boy is not with me? I fear to see the evil that would find my father. And so here, again, we see a dramatic change in Judah's life. Not only has he pledged himself to be a pledge of safety for Benjamin, he delivers and he says to Joseph, let Benjamin go and I will be your servant. Right? He's stepping in his place. I will take that pledge. And this is how chapter 44 ends. And what we find in the beginning of verse 45 is that Joseph realizes these men have been changed. And this is when Joseph finally decides. It says in verse 1 of 45, Joseph could not control himself before all those who stood by him. He cried, make everyone go out uh, from me. So no one stayed with him when Joseph made himself known to his brothers. And he wept aloud. So here, Joseph is overcome by the reality that God has changed these men's life. And God is sovereign over this whole circumstance. And so he reveals himself to them. And you imagine their jaws are hitting the floor. Oh boy, here's a guy in power. Here's the guy we plotted to sell. And yet what do we see in this instance and after Jacob dies? An extension of forgiveness, right? He extends forgiveness. So this story shows us so many things that point us to the gospel. It points us to the fact that God transforms lives. We see that in Judah, that bad example. God changes his life dramatically. We see it in that extension of forgiveness, recognizing that God is sovereign from Joseph as he forgives his brothers, even though they've done great harm. He recognizes God's providence. You meant this for evil. God meant it for good. God was working throughout this whole thing. But this, this account points, is, points us to the gospel in, a, in a, another phenomenal way. You see, as we read chapters 37 to 50, Joseph is, seems to be the central character. And so it's easy for us to think, well, this is just a chronicle of Joseph, and we think about it like a moralistic tale, be like Joseph, right? But even though Joseph is the most prominent person in these passages, in these, these verses, these chapters, he's not the main point of these chapters. These chapters are not about Joseph having integrity and rising to a place of power and prestige and prosperity. These chapters are more about God's providence and his provision to preserve the seed that he's promised to Abraham. And even going further back to Eve, that a seed of the woman would crush the head of the serpent. Because here's the thing, if these passages were about Joseph then what we would find is that Jesus would probably come through the line of Joseph. He's this great example of integrity, and so we're going to tell about his life, and this is the great, 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 however many great grandfathers of Jesus, right? But Jesus doesn't come through Joseph. Who does Jesus come through? The bad example. Judah, the example of the one God changes. Judah is the one to whom the seed is preserved. And so this passage is more about God using Joseph to preserve the seed through Judah. As you look through Jesus' genealogy, what you find is a lot of people like Judah. A lot of people that weren't great examples of integrity or great examples of holiness. You find even in the patriarchs, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, a lot of lies, deceit, cheating, stealing, things like that. You see people like Rahab the harlot, See, men like David with all his failures. Why? Why would Jesus choose to come through these imperfect people? Well, the truth is we're all imperfect. We're all sinners. Jesus said in Luke 5, 30-32, the Pharisees and the scribes grumbled at his disciples saying, why did you eat and drink with tax collectors and sinners? And Jesus answered them, those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. You see, in this account, we see a beautiful picture of the gospel. That Jesus came to save sinners. Sinners like Judah. Sinners like you and like me. Jesus is called the Lion of the tribe of Judah. And so we see this dramatic shift in focus if we're not just focused on 
this passage, but we look at Scripture as a whole, we see how this points us to the good news of the gospel. That we all fall short. None of us have true integrity in and of ourselves. We all fall short of the standard, and yet Christ came. He lived a perfect life of integrity. He laid down His life, paying the penalty for our sins, bearing God's wrath, and then rising again so that those who turn from their sin recognize their need, that they can't do it in their own strength. It's only through what Christ has done. Those who turn from their sin and put their faith in Christ can be saved and changed, transformed, just like we see God do in the life of Judah. So if you've never done that today, today is the day to recognize that you fall short of God's perfect standard, to turn from your sin, to put your faith in Christ and Christ alone. And if you've done that, the challenge is not just a moralistic, hey, be like Joseph, don't be like Judah. The challenge is to remind yourself of the gospel, to remind yourself of the source of power to live a life of integrity. It's not in your own strength. It's in the power of the Spirit that lives in those who have put their faith in Christ. We desperately need the gospel to be transforming our life and producing godliness in us. So we truly want to have integrity it's through trusting Christ day by day, reminding ourselves of the gospel. One last thing I want to point out as we wrap up, our statement on integrity ended with one aspect we haven't touched on, and it's that we accomplish integrity by, by walking in accountability to God and to one another. And it's worth making this note because as we determine our values, the fifth one on the list, we came up with four, but there was a fifth one that we incorporated into this value and into this value of integrity. And it's the value of accountability. How important it is to have accountability to God. As we have integrity, we, we have to be accountable to God, and we are accountable to God, but we have to be accountable to one another. And so a practical point is, if we want to grow in integrity, we need accountability around us. We need to be around people that we can be vulnerable with, that we can be transparent with, that can hold us accountable even when we sin. So it's worth noting in that value statement that accountability is a great tool to grow in integrity as we're trusting Christ. So let me read our statement one last time, and then we'll close in prayer. We value integrity. Therefore, we strive to honor God in our character in all areas of our lives by exhibiting honesty, trustworthiness, and discipline while walking in accountability to God and one another. 